Uh, As I often do, I want to begin this morning by asking a question. What determines how you live each and every day? Is it your desires? Others people's expectations of you, your own dreams and goals? What is it? Well, in our text today, Luke 16, Jesus sheds some light on this question. For the past 10 months, we've given our attention to Luke's gospel. And in the first nine chapters, the focus has mainly been on who is Jesus. And we've seen that Jesus is the eternal son of God who has all power. The compassionate king who pursues the broken and the wounded. The promised savior who has come to be rejected, killed, and on the third day raised to redeem all his people. That's what we've learned about the person of Jesus. And if the first nine chapters focus on who Jesus is, we've seen chapters 10 through 19 begin to focus on who a true disciple is. Jesus is making this clear. In the last several weeks, we've seen that a true follower of Jesus loves their neighbors sacrificially. A true follower of Jesus knows that the abundance of life is not found in possessions. A true follower of Jesus repents, that is, they turn from their sin. They trust God is gracious enough to forgive their sin, and they treasure Christ as better than their sin. That's what we saw last week, isn't it? In the parable of the prodigal son. Rejoicing in repentance because it reconciles us to the Father. This is the good news. The beautifully disorienting good news of Christ that no matter what we've done, no matter how much shame we feel through the person and the work of Christ, we can be reconciled back to God. The Father sees us, feels compassion for us, runs to us and then kisses us just like he did in Luke 15. That's the cross of Christ. It's the kiss, the embrace of a father's love. And because Jesus rose again, we're invited into a party, robed with the righteousness of Christ, where we'll celebrate all the Father has forever. That's why true disciples rejoice in repentance. And we learn another lesson today from our Lord. A true disciple is so compelled by the hope of heaven, it controls how they live today. And here we find the fundamental answer to the question I asked. The answer below all the other answers. What controls how we live? What you hope in? What you hope in determines how you live. Your view of the future shapes your values in the present. That's the main idea of this passage. What you place your hope in determines how you live. And Jesus narrows down on a specific target. Money, material wealth, giving, generosity. These speak about what we truly hope in. So with that sweeping truth and specific target in mind, let's begin to unpack this passage. So the text that Winston read for us, we have another parable of Christ. In verse 1, we learn about a rich man who has a manager caring for his estate. Somehow the rich man learns that the manager is not fulfilling his duties. The text says the man was wasting his, that is the rich master's possessions. This is the same word about the prodigal son in Luke 15. This rich man's manager is wasting, is squandering what was entrusted to him. So the rich man confronts the manager, verse 2, and he he says, Turn in your account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. 
In other words, pack up your desk, turn in your badge, you're fired. Well, the manager's heart sinks. He becomes afraid. His hopes for the future are now in question. Verse 3 and 4, he responds. The, the, the cushy job sitting behind the nice desk in the, the master's home has left him too weak to dig, and he's too proud to beg. What's he going to do? He comes up with another plan. He says to himself, remember the prodigal? He came to himself. This man comes to him, himself. What's he say? Well, he's got a little bit of a different plan than the prodigal son. What shall I do, the man says? I, I've got a plan. I'll make sure that I have friends who receive me when my master kicks me out. That's what I'm going to do. So what's his plan? His plan is to reduce the balance owed to his master's debtors so they'll be indebted. They'll think favorably of him. One by one, he calls them in. How much money do I owe my master? As if he didn't know. First debtor replies, a hundred measures of oil. The manager moves in. Would it be okay with you if we just reduce that by 50%? If so, just go ahead and tear up your bill and write a new one. With wood and debtor now in his favor, he moves on. How much do you owe my master? Second debtor, a hundred measures of wheat. The manager moves in yet again. Would it be okay if I gave you a perpetual 20% off coupon? Would that be okay with you? These are not petty amounts. It'd be like your, your student loan company or your mortgage company calling them like, hey, would it be okay if we just knocked 50% off your bill? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's what's happening here. And yet his actions are difficult to interpret. It seems like he's being dishonest. Yet in verse 8, his master commends him. And then to add to the confusion, Jesus co-signs that commendation. Preachers and commentators and Bible readers alike are tied in knots at this point. Is Jesus telling us to be dishonest so we can make money? Well, there's at least two ways to understand what's going on here. Some say the manager is stealing from his rich master. He's re reducing what is rightly owed to the master so that people would think favorably and be in debt to him. That's one way. Others believe the manager lowered the debts by sacrificing his own commission. That is, he took short-term losses for long-term gains. My view? I don't know. You know why? The text doesn't tell us. We have to let the text be authoritative. It doesn't tell us. The point is, that's not the point of the passage. Either way, notice the text does not say the rich man commanded the, the manager for his dishonesty. It does not say that. It says it commended him for his shrewdness, his ability to look at the future and act accordingly. This manager had hopes for a comfortable future, and he acted accordingly. He uses his master's money to make friends. He uses present opportunities to prepare for the future. Do you see what he hoped in determine exactly how he acted? And in the second half of verse 8, Jesus challenges his disciples. They too need to let what they hope in determine how they act. Look at verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Here's what Jesus is saying. It is lamentable that unbelievers spend so much time, devotion, 
energy, working diligently, studying intently, investing wisely for those things that are temporary and fade away. When so many Christians, the sons of light, the daughters of light, don't spend time preparing for and investing in their eternal home heaven. This is not about business practices. This is about our home in heaven. Jesus is making a lesser to a greater argument. He's saying if unbelievers give so much attention and energy to amass a future of earthly trinkets that will fade away, how much more, beloved, how much more should we accumulate eternal treasures that will never pass away? Or as we said before, a true disciple is so compelled by the hope of heaven, it controls how they live today. So there's a question for us in here. Ask yourself, does my hope of heaven fuel how I live today? Do I enjoy the pleasures of this world in such a way it prompts me to think about the greater pleasures of heaven? Do I navigate the trials, the tears of this world with the soul-anchoring promises of heaven? If the greatest joy of heaven is knowing Jesus more fully, forever growing in the comprehension of the beauty of his character, better understanding the sufficiency of the cross, the splendor of the death-defeating resurrection. Do I seek to know more about that now? If one of the great joys of heaven is fellowshipping, gathering with God's people and worshiping Christ, do I seek to do that now or do I only do it when it's comfortable and convenient for me? Does the hope of heaven, do the, do the thrills of heaven prompt your soul to act today? Well, you asked more specifically, Joey. What might that look like? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus begins to move in verse 9. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus tells his disciples to do what? Make friends with your money. Those who will receive you into eternal dwellings. He's talking about heaven. More on that in a moment. Let me answer this question. What's up with unrighteous wealth? Well, when Jesus calls money unrighteous wealth, he simply means it's part of the unrighteous world. He, he, money in of itself is not evil. It's, it's necessary to navigate this world in worshiping God and loving neighbor. In short, Jesus is saying, listen, money, use money then do the same thing as a dishonest manager. Use present opportunities to prepare for your future, yet with crucial differences. Note the word eternal there in verse 9. The manager used his master's money to be welcomed into earthly homes. Followers of Jesus are to use our master's money to be received into eternal home. Jesus is saying, be even more wise and shrewd than this manager. Those who invest their money and material wealth in this world might enjoy it for 80 years. But I want you to invest in such a way that you'll enjoy your investment for 80 billion years. And this leads to another difference. Note the phrase, when it fails. Not if it fails. The shrewdness of the manager is short term. It's based on worldly wealth and that will fail. Remember the, the, the parable of the rich fool we looked at a few weeks ago, chapter 12. What did God say to that man? Fool, 
This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You know what you never see? You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Why? You cannot take it with you. There's a bumper sticker that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins. The better, more theologically correct bumper sticker says, the one who dies with the most toys still dies. Money and material wealth will fail us. And if we've learned anything over the past few months, it may not be just when we die. The economy hangs by a thin thread. It may fail us before. But beloved, it's so important. Do not lose hope. We are not to despair. Oh no. We don't have to despair. There's treasure that doesn't fail. And we have a father whose good pleasure is to give us all that we need to enjoy him. Remember that again, after the parable of the rich fool in chapter 12, Jesus goes on and tells his disciples, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. Why? With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Same word. Jesus tells us, use money, take hold of it, use it for eternal spiritual purposes to secure dwellings with friends. And who exactly are these friends? What's he just talking about? Amen, Christopher. He's ahead of me. The next couple of verses that we'll look at next week begin to give us a clue. Verses 19 through 31, we meet another rich man. And this rich man had a poor neighbor, Lazarus. And instead of using his money to do good to Lazarus, he uses his money to make worldly gains, not heavenly friends. He didn't love God and his neighbor with his money. And now, as we'll see, this rich man is in hell. Lazarus is in heaven. So instead of having friends in heaven, he has witnesses against him. This is the opposite of what Christ commands us to do. So what is it? What does it mean to make friends with our money? Well, another pastor put it this way. Making friends with your money means using your money to meet people's needs and advance the gospel. The way to lay up treasure in heaven that does not fail. Some of these people will be converted and go before you into heaven and welcome you there with great joy to join them in eternal dwellings. Isn't that beautiful? A true disciple is so compelled by the hope of heaven, it controls how they live today, especially it relates to money and material possessions. Now let me be clear. Jesus is not talking about buying your way into heaven. No. You cannot. That's impossible. It's the blood of Christ alone that is sufficient to purchase our eternal home. Jesus isn't talking about earning. He's talking about enjoying. Enjoying now and forever. Jesus is inviting us to reimagine the good life. A life that uses your resources to do as much good as you can for the glory of God and the good of others. Some of who will become your eternal friends and welcome you into heaven. How amazing is that truth? And notice that's motivation, Jesus' motivation here. It's not rules and duties. It's relationships and eternal delights. Do you see that, beloved? Jesus is not after your begrudging behavior, but your everlasting good. He urges us toward radical gospel generosity with our money and material wealth, not because he wants to take something from us. No, no, no. He wants to give something better to us. 
And we know, those in Christ know, the power to live this way is not white-knuckled effort, squeezing, holding on. But it's the Holy Spirit creating affections in our soul to delight in the supremacy of Christ. So we don't just follow the commands of Christ, we cherish Him. And we so cherish Him, we desire others to do the same. So Jesus is saying, use your money, your hospitality, your home, all that God has given you in life, so that one day when you walk into heaven, there is a line of people to meet you. Imagine how thrilling that day will be. Imagine what it will be like to enter heaven and and meet Zorak. You have no idea who he is, but he approaches you and he says, you don't know who I am. I grew up in northern Iraq. And there was a man who came to my village who, who just had the Bible translated into my language. And he told me about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the sin payment for Christ. And I bowed my knee to Christ. And I learned that he could come to me because you gave to him and his work. Imagine that conversation. And then behind him stands Yinsi, a Colombian sister. And she doesn't say anything to you. She just walks up to you and wraps her arms around you because there is no coronavirus and she can do that. And she hugs you and she cries and as she pulls away, she says, thank you. I came to faith in Christ through Iglesia Biblica Sublime Gracia. And your faithful giving to your church helped plant that church and I know Christ because of that. The line goes on. Maybe it's the neighbor that you paid the bills for during a hard time and shared the gospel and why you're being so generous. Maybe it's an entire family served by DC 127 that you, you said, I'm going to give directly to that ministry. I don't know where the money's going to go. Maybe it's just the pastors you've had throughout your life. And through your faithful giving to the local church, they come up to you and say, thank you. Thank you for faithfully giving so we could labor for the gospel. Who might be in your heavenly welcome line? So do you see what Jesus is doing? Like a captain painting a stunning picture of the sea that it's so compelling we can't help but build a sailboat. Jesus invites us to imagine the special, unique web of relationships in heaven because of how we use our money today. Beloved, I praise God for your generosity. I know so many of you that give individually for the good of neighbor, for the advancement of the gospel to to, to your neighbors near and far. I praise God for that. Do it all the more. And I praise God for our church corporately. Notice we don't have a budget. We have what we call an investment strategy. And if you look at our investment strategy, you will see that it aligns with it. We want to make eternal friends, some of who we will never meet on earth, but we will celebrate in heaven with forever and ever. Praise God for your generosity, beloved. Praise God for it. And if looking ahead to heaven isn't enough, look back at the cross. So do you realize Jesus is not calling us to do anything himself he's unwilling to do? Jesus gave away all that he had to make eternal friends. For you know the grace of God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. 
Jesus is the ultimate shrewd servant who used all of his resources to make eternal, beloved, cherished friends. And the good news is he receives anyone who will come and trust in him. Will you trust in him? Will you rejoice in repentance and receive the friendship of Christ? For those that do, know this. Jesus died on the cross not just to pardon us as enemies, but to make us intimate friends. The cross is a cosmic act of friendship. Yes, Jesus is our king, but he's also our close companion. And we know he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day, and he's soon returning. So that what? We will enjoy heaven with our ultimate friend Jesus and all of our friends. The world was always meant to be everything sad, untrue, enjoying life. How amazing is this? Do you see what Christ is using to motivate our soul, to thrill us with the hope and the beauty and the glory and the majesty of heaven? Is this your hope? Now, some of you might be saying, Joey, I agree with all that. I agree with every bit of it. And when I have just a little bit more, then I'll start giving. I just don't have enough right now. Well, Jesus is kind to us and he has a word. In verses 10 through 12, that's exactly what Jesus addresses. He essentially says the same thing three different ways. And the basic point is this. Faithfulness in little things comes before faithfulness in big things. You see that. In context, Jesus is saying, if you're not faithful and generous with what little money you have now, what makes you think you'll be faithful and generous when you have more? Having more money does not redeem lack of generosity. You know that. Having more money does not create faithfulness in giving. Jesus is telling us, don't use your time considering what you might do with what money you might have tomorrow. His concern is this. Are you faithful with what you have today? And he grounds his concern in verse 13. Look at that. No servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Notice how emphatic Jesus is. No servant. Notice how personal Jesus is. You cannot. Serving God and money are mutually exclusive. Jesus does not say you should not serve God and money. He says you cannot. There is no mushy middle. There is no nominal discipleship of Christ. You can no more serve God and money than you can walk in two directions at the same time. It's impossible. And also notice what Jesus didn't say. He did not say you cannot have God and have money. The issue isn't possession of money, but it's priority in our lives. Here's the reality. We either use money, love God to help people, or we use God, love money to help ourselves. You must choose. Jesus is calling for single-minded devotion. He's saying a true disciple is so compelled by God in heaven that it controls how they spend their money on earth. Well, how might we begin to assess this in our lives? This week I came across a few warning signs that a love for money might be occupying our hearts. One, if you're anxious about money, consumed by financial worry, 
then maybe you're not trusting God to provide for your needs. You might love money and its power to make you feel secure. Two, if you constantly think about the things you want to buy, then you're looking toward possessions for happiness. You might love money and its power to purchase comfort. If you make life decisions, taking a new job, buying a new house, something like that, that seems financially wise but is spiritually unwise, you might love money and its power to buy the freedom that you so desire. If you have difficulty or refuse to give sacrificially, you might love money and its power to provide the abundance of possessions. Those are just a few. Money is a terrible God. It demands your affection, requires your attention, and promises abundance and security only to fail you. So when Jesus says, listen, you cannot serve God in money, he's not calling us to reduce our desires for abundance and security. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, no, I want your desires for abundance and security to be so massive that nothing in this world can satisfy and stabilize your soul. That's what he's saying. He's calling us to enjoy God himself by extravagantly giving so that we might have true riches. True riches in heaven. What we do with money in our hands magnifies the hope in our hearts. What we do with the money in our hands magnifies the hope in our hearts. We see that in exactly what comes next. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed Jesus. The Pharisees loved money, so they hated the Messiah. They assumed the will of God and wealth pulled in the same direction, so you know you could love God, and you could love money. And because of that, look at the next verse. They sought to justify themselves. Jesus reminds them, listen, listen, your your money might look good before others, but it does nothing to impress God. God looks on the heart, not the wallet. The Pharisees confused the way of the world, wealth, status, power, prestige with the ways of God. But God's ways are utterly disorienting. He's not impressed by our behavior or our bank account. We cannot earn his affection and love by doing enough good things, even religious things. We've seen this throughout Luke, that God is drawn toward the humble, the outcast, the lowly, the hurting, the wounded, the generous, the simple-minded. If you think that you're too good to need Jesus or to be too bad to be loved by Jesus, no, it's not true. That's not what God's word says. God is drawn to those who know they need Christ. And all of us do. But the Pharisees thought, no, we're, we're good. We got this. They didn't need Jesus and they rejected his teaching. And then they claimed to be faithful to the law, to the word of God, but deliberately twisted it for their own benefit. So Jesus gives them that rebuke in verses 16 and 17. He said, Jesus says, listen, the good news of the kingdom is being preached. 
and is being preached by me. With all your religious zeal for the law and the prophets, you are utterly blind to the kingdom to which they point. You're focused on your little man-centered kingdom. You miss it. You're blind. Everybody else is considering. You recognize sinners, those that shouldn't come. They're coming into the kingdom, and yet you are not. You're trying to force your way in by your good behavior. He says, listen, the law and the prophets point to me. I'm bringing God's kingdom. I am the king. You Pharisees, you manipulate and change the law. You lower the bar to make yourself look good. But God's word does not change any more than heaven and earth will pass away. That's what he tells them. And that's where verse 18 comes in. He's using divorce and remarriage as an example to show how the Pharisees distort God's word. That's what he's doing. She's saying, listen, in reality, it doesn't change. You can say it changes, but it does not change. Jesus' intent in verse 18 is not to say everything possible about marriage. He's giving a basic principle to rebuke the Pharisees. And what Jesus is telling the Pharisees, he says, listen, the brief marriages that you allow, that you recommend, that you endorse, are no better than adultery. You're so concerned with your strict rules that you make up about God's word that you actually don't want to keep God's word. You want to twist it and use God because you love money. You don't want to serve people. You don't want to care for people. You want them to serve you and justify you. That's what he's saying. So do you see the example of the Pharisees? What they placed their hope in determined how they live. They hoped in money and man's favor. That's what they lived for. It's what they lived for. They even distorted God's word to get what they wanted. So their lives had been reduced down to the size of the bills in their pocket. Their heart had been shriveled up so much, it was satisfied with the praise of another person. Jesus invites us into something bigger, better, more beautiful. He's not just saying, don't be like the Pharisees. He's saying, you need not. You need not be like the Pharisees. Come, enjoy my eternal friendship. Be so thrilled by the promises of heaven. And when you do that, you will live in such a way not to amass earthly trinkets, but to accumulate heavenly treasures that will never pass away. So we ask us this morning, how will you respond? Will you love money or will you love God? Whichever you choose, whichever you hope in, will determine how you live. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we marvel at your word. That a passage that can be so confusing at first reading is so deep and soul-stirring. So Holy Spirit, stir our affections that we might cherish Christ above all and live generously, that we might anticipate and enjoy a wonderful heavenly welcome line that leads to Christ, our ultimate friend. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.